Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, October 28th, 2011. Sip of Earl Grey tea. <laughs> and what looks like a roadmap for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There, sadly, there's no shortage of really, really crazy off, needless things being said about God. Why is it crazy off and needless to be said? Well, because it's not like God hasn't spoken. He has. Um, you know, you can find out what God's revealed about himself by reading the Bible, um, I recommend reading it in context, and um, and so like you know, one of the things that people do, and it's a bad habit. I mean, it's a really bad habit. It's 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 no bueno. It's this idea that uh, they've taken the Bible and blown it apart into a gazillion little pieces, and each of those pieces is a verse or part of a verse, and. And so when people say, yeah, I'm doing Bible memory, uh, one of the things they're doing is that they found a sentence or a verse or half a verse that somehow is speaking to their life, and they've decided to memorize that thing out of context. And yeah, um, it just it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, I hate to break it to you, but this um, this idea about Bible verses – the Bible verses were an apparatus that came a lot later than uh, the biblical authors. And the purpose of the apparatus, uh, the the chapter headings and the verse numbers, things like that, uh, the purpose of the apparatus was to assist the reader in locating particular sections of the scripture that yeah the 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 apparatus was about getting to parts of the bible quickly and uh and what's happened is is that the apparatus has in some cases gotten in the way of soundly reading the bible so um the idea is this is that um uh, you you want you want to be studying the scripture 
and reading the sections of scripture the way they were intended to be read. Um, for instance, um, when you read an epistle, um, not a good idea if you spend a year working through through a single epistle, you know, uh, just tiny line after tiny line after tiny line. Um, yeah, that's not a good idea. Um, you see, when the Apostle Paul penned like Ephesians, it wasn't it wasn't designed for for the church to digest it slowly um, over a, a, you know a a twelve month period. The idea was is that the church in its entirety was read uh, to the congregation, and in some cases in the ancient church, that would be the sermon. Um, that would be that would be the uh, idea of. Uh, well, being dedicated to preaching and reading and uh, God's word. And so the idea there is is that it's really, really, really <laughs> like almost impossibly difficult and hard to understand what Ephesians is about if you've never taken, you know, the 20, 30 minutes to sit down and read the thing from beginning to end. Um, and so the uh, that's what you really want to do. Um, so... Um, it's not that verses are bad. It's just that you have to understand that if you're going to really study the scriptures, one of the primary ways in properly understanding what the scriptures teach is to read large portions of it in context and in, in single settings. And so you really want to be doing that. I, you know, and uh, what you're going to find is, is that when you get into that habit, it's a really good habit to be in, by the way. Um, then what will happen is is that you'll see <clears throat> that the more you do that, the the less biblical illiteracy you have. Why? Well, because um, just <clears throat> I know this sounds basic, but I know the other part of it is, is I actually know that some of you are hearing me going, wow, I, I, really? You could do that with the – yes, you can. I, and that's the weird part. Is And the reason I know that is because <laughs> – I've got several emails sitting in my email account to this effect at the moment. And so so the idea is this. Um, when you read large sections of Scripture, large blocks of it, it, reading comprehension, you get the full swath of what's going on. In other words, it's um, when, when you read large chunks of it, you, it's, it's, um, it's not even a 10,000-foot flyover. Um, you know, it's, it, it's really not that at all. It's, it's more like a hike through the woods and, and, and you're getting the, how, how do they say the warp and woof of what the scriptures teach. So, um, may I suggest if you are not already, um, in a daily regular basis, reading God's word, um, to, um, to do so. And as you're doing it, one of the reasons why I think uh, Bible reading is so painful in, in some cases is that uh, your devotional books, um, the 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 tendency to split up the Bible so that it doesn't make any sense, uh, you chop it up into so many little pieces, you have no idea how any of those pieces fit together. You just chuck all that stuff. Um, uh, yeah. <clears throat> no, I and I mean that seriously, you know. Um, if you have like you know, you know the, the, one of those little prayer books, you know God's Word for today or something like that, um, may I strongly suggest uh, you know, put it aside uh, and open up the biblical text? Because um, one of the things I've noticed about those devotional books is they'll it'll begin 
it, they, each of those, each of the daily devotions and a lot of the devotional books are like Hallmark cards. I mean, you get some, you get some verse out of context. It's kind of flowery and, you know, and, and, and then there's, you know, and so you get a verse or two and then you get someone's devotional thinking on that verse. And, uh, man, I, I gotta tell you, um, I have never in my entire Christian life, um, found any of that to help me in understanding the scriptures like at all. Um, so, you know, so if you're, if you're new to the Bible, uh, what I strongly recommend is a, um, um, a, a, you can kind of chop it up into different sections. And so the nice thing is, is that because the Bible is in fact, it is a library. Okay. It is a library of different books of different genres written by different authors at different times. And so, uh, you know, just, just a good organized way of working through the scriptures is, uh, beginning with a psalm, okay? Uh, the psalms will actually teach you how to pray, and it teach you, teaches you what, you know, how biblical worship is, what it's all about. Begin with a psalm, um, then go into an Old Testament reading. And so the idea is is that, uh, in fact, this is a perfectly fine thing to do is start at Genesis, and, and um, as part of your daily routine, read a couple of chapters, um, you know, two, three chapters from the Old Testament, um, if you want to, uh, one of the things that folks do as part of their biblical reading is they, uh, the, the, uh, the Proverbs, uh, there's, uh, 31 Proverbs. So you can do these, uh, you can do one proverb, you know, uh, chapter a day. That's a perfectly fine thing to do and, and key it in with the calendar. So, you know, uh, on, on November 1st, you're reading Proverbs chapter one, perfectly fine thing to do. Uh, it's, it's actually very beneficial and understand that none of that wisdom is, is useful for somebody who doesn't have faith in Christ because, uh, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that's talking about faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, so, uh, you, so you got, so uh, Psalm, begin with a Psalm, get into the old Testament uh, and then, uh, and then, what you can do is, uh, is uh, you know, pick one of the uh, one of the New Testament texts. Uh, like uh, you can start with the Gospels, perfectly fine thing to do. And one of the things I w- we we make a habit of doing is is that if we're working through a Gospel one, we're finished with one of the Gospels rather than going to the next Gospel. For instance, if we're working through the Gospel of Matthew, once you finish the Gospel of Matthew. Then work through uh, something like Romans or First Corinthians, um, and then or work through a few epistles. Go back, do another gospel. Work through some more epistles. So the idea here is is that you're you're kind of switching up your uh, your your biblical reading, and what you'll find is is that very quickly you're going to start to get a, a very good picture of what's going on here. Now, and if you if you find a section where you're reading it and you're going, yeah, this ain't making sense, or I have a lot of questions. It's perfectly fine to slow down in those sections and consult a good uh, a study Bible or a good uh, commentary, uh, the, some kind of resource to help you understand what that section's about. But um, yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure what has happened uh, in, in the sense that um, I, I don't know why people, when they're approaching biblical study, um, that somehow they think that the, you study the Bible differently than the way you would study uh, any other text, as if somehow I can just you know rip a verse from here, rip a verse from there, rip yeah. 
And uh, again, one of the things I point out here at Fighting for the Faith is uh, to, you know, three primary rules to help protect you from bad teachers. Um, those three rules are context, context, and context. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's well over 90% of all the bad Bible twisting going on out there literally just vanishes uh, as soon as you take a text and you put it back in context. Now, that doesn't always happen. There are some texts. There are some texts. Sorry, I got the um, <clears throat> I got the World Series on my mind here. Um, there are some texts that even after you put it in context, you're still going to be scratching your head and you're going to need a little bit of help there. But, there, I mean, we live in an age when literally uh, there are some very, very good biblical scholarly uh, tools available at your fingertips on the Internet or, uh, you, know, uh, you know, via, you know, a good site like Logos.com. You, you get what I'm saying anyway. So the idea there is is that, you know, there's going to be some areas. And so um, it's always good um, to to be in Scripture and to be taking in, uh, you know, Scripture in, in, in pretty healthy doses and you're thinking, well, what about, yeah, there's sto- the large portion of Scripture stories. And so you're going to want to read them as you would a story. I mean, for instance, I mean, uh, one of my favorite uh, books, uh, it wasn't even a book, it was a trilogy, um, growing up was uh, T- uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I mean, you know, who reads The Lord of the Rings by reading one page at a time? I mean, you do that, you're never going to get through the story. I mean, yeah. same thing with the Bible, same thing with the Bible. So... Uh, in many senses, think of it as, you know, read it the way you would any other book. Um, and then, you know, there are sections that, uh, for sure that you can slow down and really, truly dig into. But, uh, you know, again, I, I, I cannot I cannot admonish you enough to, uh, you know, to as part of your biblical uh, reading uh, to... Not taking small portions, taking large heaping portions, and uh, and you know, stretch yourself a little bit. It's not a bad thing to do. And, uh, I mean, and the reality is, is that if the majority of people who are in the visible church were doing that, there wouldn't be much need for me. Then I, it would put me right out of a job, and I wouldn't complain because uh, you know I'd find something different to do with my time. You know, maybe going to pastoral ministry or something like that. But you, you understand what I'm saying, but. So one of the one of the reasons why there's so much confusion going on is because there's so much biblical illiteracy in Christian churches doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, we're awash in Bibles and biblical illiteracy is at a halt all-time high, you know. So anyway, in fact, where did I see this? Yeah, I'm going to get this wrong. I just know I'm going to get this wrong. I I I think I saw a statistic that in the United States there are more Bibles than people. Don't quote me on it, though. I just yeah, I may I may be mixing metaphors here. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday, and uh, you know this is one of those times where um, I wanted to circle back, and uh, one of the things we're going to do later in the hour is I'm going to circle back and I'm going to play another segment from Mark Driscoll's uh, video series that's available on uh, YouTube. If you if you want to if you want to see this, it's multi part. And uh, the name of it is Spiritual Warfare by Mark Driscoll. That's the name of the series. You can find it at YouTube. And uh, we, we uh, a while ago, we played some of the uh, some pieces from this, where Mark Driscoll was talking about how he pretty has kind of has like pornographic visions. Apparently, can see 
really awful, terrible sins being committed by people in his church or being committed on the people in there. It's, it just it was worrisome to say the least. But um, some of my friends uh, on the internet pointed out that there's some more, there's some more stuff going on here. And I was strongly considering waiting until like, you know, Halloween because it's really creepy kind of stuff to cover it. But no, I decided I'm going to cover it today. And I just kind of asked the question, where did he get this stuff? Um, so that's what we're going to do a little bit later in the hour to kind of warm us up. I uh, got a commercial for a sermon series by John Hagee entitled Desperate Housewives of the Bible. I take a look at that. Um, and uh, and and that we're going to do a, an emergent church update. And um, man, um <laughs> Okay, so um, I, I think a lot of y'all know that uh, over the years I've done a lot of primary source research on the emergent church. And uh, what that required me to do was uh, spend a lot of time traveling to different emergent conferences. In fact, I know a lot of the folks in the emergent church yeah, personally. Um, and uh, I even have some of them in my cell phone. But uh, Doug Paget is a guy that uh, I've gotten to known over uh, to know over the years, and uh, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, his latest books I just don't get them like at all. And so, um, so he's um, I don't know how to explain this, but we're going to be listening to him doing a, 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 a an interview with uh, another emergent guy by the name of Trip Fuller. And uh, Trip Fuller does a website and a podcast called Homebrewed Christianity. And uh, and he recently interviewed Doug Paget regarding his books that he's been writing regarding doing having something to do with doing church in what he calls the inventive age. And um, I, I I'm just going to put it out there for you folks and see if you get it. I mean, I don't get it. I truly, honestly, don't get it. Um, you know, apparently I don't share the same set of assumptions uh, regarding church that uh, Doug Paget does, and this is going to become painfully clear as I play that for you. And uh, it's so you know, we're, and then for by the way, hour number two, we're going to review a good sermon. We're going to review a good sermon. Um, I, we're gonna uh, we're gonna travel, if you would, to uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. We're gonna listen to the sermon that uh, Pastor Ron Hodel preached uh, the, just this past Sunday, and it's on that text that uh, that I cov- you know kind of touched on midweek uh, regarding uh, Jesus being asked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, "What are the greatest com- you know What's the greatest commandment?" And, uh, and boy, I got to tell you, great sermon. One of the reasons why it's such a great sermon by Ron Hodel is, uh, man, he takes the law and he cranks it. And at the end of it, you're going, yeah, well, um, I'm in trouble. And then he brings the gospel in and the gospel is just that much sweeter because he preached the law lawfully. So, um, so that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It'll be a little bit shorter 
And uh, I like to at times mix up the links based on the stuff that I'm doing. So make yourself comfortable. This is not a, you know, it's not a train wreck edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is just your normal bread and butter kind of edition of Fighting for the Faith. So make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather permits, they do enhance your listener experience, which is very important to me. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage, we do not have a problem with that. The biblical prohibition, though, is against drunkenness. So you don't want to take that good gift that God has given to us and become enslaved to us. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, all right, so let's dive into this. I don't have any sermon, I don't have any music to segue into this segment, but here, this is just to kind of make you go, what? Um Y'all familiar with Mark Driscoll's, you know, Song of Solomon sermon series and how every seeker-driven church has uh, decided to jump on the sex sermon series bandwagon because, you know, (laughs) I mean, sex sells. I mean, what what better way to sell your church than get people into your congregation than, you know, to talk about sex? Well, John Hagee is, um, aside from being a heretic, uh, has decided to jump on to that type of theme bandwagon. So, Here's a short commercial for him advertising his sermon series entitled Desperate Housewives of the Bible. Here we go. Series Desperate Housewives of the Bible. You'll hear four pulse-pounding sermons on Ruth, the woman who got her man, Esther, crowned in crisis, Tamar, the sex scandal. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Did he say pulse-pounding sermons? (sighs) And Abigail, the woman who married the wrong man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That's just ridiculous. We're going to do a sermon series about a a, a sermon on Abigail, the woman who married the wrong man. Yeah, but I mean, it does. <clears throat> if you're familiar with the story of David, Abigail, and uh, her husband Nabal, which means fool, um, then you know that this that uh, Abigail's marriage is well, her, the wedding ceremony, the courtship, and all that kind of stuff. None, none of that ever comes up, so uh, we don't really know the circumstances under which Abigail ended up married to Nabal. Um, but you know, one thing that's completely possible is that it was an arranged marriage. Um, man, it's just, you know, I got to back this up. I mean, cause I mean, pulse pounding. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hang on. We got to hear it again. Here are four pulse pounding sermons on Ruth, the woman who got her man, Esther crowned in crisis, Tamar, the sex scandal, Oh man. and Abigail, the woman who married the wrong man. If I have ever preached a series of sermons, you must hear. It's this one. To order Pastor John Hagee's sermon series, Desperate Housewives of the Bible, call the number on the screen or log on to our website at jhm.org. Okay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Selling sermons. Um. Yeah. If there's ever been a series of sermons that you must listen to this is yeah well um does jesus come up in any of these i'm you know just curious anyway so i mean if you're looking for some pulse pounding sermonage um in you know in some really riveting stuff you know uh, you know like tamar the sex scandal abigail the, the the woman who married the wrong man and esther who was crowned in crisis and um yeah um here here's the deal um 
Whoa. Hmm. I'm having a hard time with um, the the idea of marketing sermons this way. Um, You know, and one of the things that the seeker-driven guys have been doing a lot, you know, for the past few years is that they always have previews for upcoming sermon series. Um, They haven't even preached yet. But, uh, you know, kind of movie theater style. And, uh, you know, I just don't get that. I mean... Don't you think that the content of the sermon, if it's really that amazing, then, uh, you know, then that's the kind of thing that people will say, man, you got to hear that sermon. It was the content of it was amazing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer if, uh, in letting substance be the thing that drives things rather than symbolism. Yeah, they talk about symbol over substance. I'm a substance over symbol guy, and I just consider marketing to be a lot of symbol stuff. And uh, you know, by the way, um, I spent some time in corporate America uh, as as a director of marketing. Um, you know, I, 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 I've actually director of sales and marketing. I so I know something about marketing. I've written many marketing plans for companies and and uh, done work along those lines. And uh, uh, what kind of clue you in on a distinction that a lot of people don't really think about? Okay, there is a big difference between marketing and branding. Now, I know this doesn't sound like it has anything to do with the Bible, but here's the deal. There's, you got all these guys running around doing marketing for their church, and I am not a fan of marketing. I am a fan of branding, but branding, if you understand the distinction, is something very different than marketing. Branding has to do with, um, well, what a product really is known for. Okay, F- for instance, um, if I were to say to you uh, the word Toyota, okay, a lot of you, just with me saying the word Toyota, you're, you're thinking, okay, reliability, okay? So Toyota is a, is a car company who, the, the way it has been branded, and this is as a result of their performance, okay, um, is, a, is a car company known for cars that are, well, they're reliable. They're, they're so, you know, high reliability. And then if I were to say Volvo, you would be thinking, okay, safety, okay? Right. Okay. And that's, you know, and part of that just has to do with the fact that, you know, year after year after year after year, Volvos have, you know, come in super high in the, in the car safety category and Toyotas are very reliable. Um, so the idea, if, if I were to say, Hey, listen, I'm going to sell you a Chevy and, and, or if Chevy were to try to, to market itself as a very reliable car, you sit there and go, yeah, no. I'm not buying it. Chevys are not reliable. Um, you know, they that's not what they're known for. And so you would resist that idea because of, of the way these things have been branded. Branded. So, okay, so when you think of marketing and branding, there's a big difference. Big difference. And, and, and uh, let me give you a metaphor that you can, y'all can hang on to, okay? Um, imagine, if you would, uh, that um, work with me here, uh, you single guys out there. That uh, you know, let, let's say you single guys who are in college, okay? Um, that there's a gal that you like. She's cute. She's smart, and you know, you've you, you every time you see her in class, it's your heart just does that pitter patter thing that that you know happens when you you think you've met the woman of your dreams, okay? And and so you, you learn a little, you learn a few things about this girl because you know you want to ask her out and you want things to go well because you're you're hoping for longer than you know a, a relationship that, that that you know can last the distance so to speak, 
And so what you find out is is that this is a girl that really likes philosophy, and for whatever reason, couldn't, couldn't explain it, but she really likes uh, the readings of, of, of Jean-Paul Sartre. Okay, so so she's she's into existentialist philosophy. Okay, now you're not. Okay, so um, now you have two choices. Okay, one choice is marketing; the other choice is branding. Okay. Marketing would go along the lines of this. You decide, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite her over uh, to my house for dinner. I'm going to make her, you know, some uh, make her a meal. I'm going to show off my cooking skills. And so you invite this girl over to your home. And what you do is you uh, prior to her arrival, you go to amazon.com and you fix, you you purchase a few selected uh works of Jean-Paul Sartre. And and you take those books and you um and you strategically place them at different part you know points in the house and uh, and so she comes over and and uh, you know you you you've cooked a meal for her you guys are you know enjoying an adult beverage whatever and she looks over and over there on your coffee table wouldn't you know she sees a copy of of Jean-Paul Sartre's you know you know pick a title for her book and she goes you oh, you read Sartre no way I love Sartre, and and see so what's happened is, is you've never actually really read a single book, of you know, and so you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to begin to discuss anything regarding, and you just, oh yeah, you know, it's just a little light reading. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good, and you know, and so you 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 basically create the impression you're trying to market yourself as somebody who, well, you know, has the same <clears throat> uh, tastes as this girl that you're trying to court. That's what we call marketing. Okay, marketing is all about creating an impression, right? Branding is something different. Okay, branding is something completely different. If you were to, if you know, branding would be, okay, this girl likes Jean-Paul Sartre. I've never read any books by him, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out. I'm going to purchase a few of his books. I'm going to get, uh, you know, I'm going to get a book about his philosophy, and I'm going to dive into this stuff and 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 begin to learn what this is all about, so that I can have an intelligent conversation with her. And um and you know and so I'm not interested in marketing myself because in some senses marketing is about creating impressions. Branding, on the other hand, is has something to do with character. It has something to do with a proven track record. It has something to do with you, what you are. And so one of the problems I have with um, seeker-driven churches is they're always engaging in marketing, trying to create an impression. And um, and over and over and over again, when we push on that the, the impressions that they're creating, we find that those impressions fall flat. And so, um, if in fact, if anything, I would make the case that uh, seeker-driven churches um, have branded themselves really poorly because uh, the proof always being in the pudding, there's like nothing in the pudding, um, like at all. And it's, you know, so, you know, they like to, you know, market themselves as relevant Bible teaching churches. They're entertaining. Um, if I don't know how they're defining relevant, but they're not Bible teaching churches at all. I mean, that's just a marketing term. Um, if they were truly Bible teaching churches, then we'd see it in what they're doing, and they, you know, they would brand themselves along those ways. So, you know, so I mean, for instance, I mean, let me let me just give you a quick example here, okay? Uh, as far as branding in your mind, okay, who? has established himself as a man who rightly handles God's word. Okay? Rick Warren? 
or Albert Muller. And you're going, well, there's not much. Yeah, right. And see, well, here's the deal. How did you come to the conclusion that Albert Muller is somebody who rightly handles God's word as opposed to Rick Warren? Rick Warren advertises Saddleback Church as a Bible-teaching church. But that doesn't pan out, does it? Whereas Albert Muller, I'm not sure if he engages in much marketing. Um, but I got to tell you, everything everything I get my hands on that he's ever done as far as a public lecture that handles a biblical text, scary how, how much detail and depth he goes into. It's very impressive. And so the idea here is, is that here we got John Hagee talking about the Desperate Housewives of the Bible series, and um, it's just marketing. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the Hagee brand has nothing to do with deep and profound um, scholarly sound exegesis of the scriptures. Far from it. And so what's happened is is that uh, the church is overrun with a lot of, well, um, outfits, if you would, that really do a good job of marketing themselves as Bible-teaching churches. But when it comes to the proof being in the pudding, yeah, that, 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 oh, that, that, well, there's always a problem here. So that's actually, by the way, one of the reasons why I do the sermon reviews here, so that we can push through the marketing and see what the brand is really all about. That's the one, that's one of the reasons I do that. So, all right, we are up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to take a listen to uh, Doug Paget being interviewed on uh, homebrewed Christianity about something to do with doing church in the inventive age. And I got to tell you, I um, you know, I consider myself to be a reasonably educated person. I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, but um, I'm at a total loss as to figuring out what it is that he's even talking about here. So uh, uh, hang in there. When we return, we'll be doing that. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, Majestic Mystery. Oh, Mysterious Majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I 
can only hold it open. I don't like this oh, at all. Majestic <laughs> mystery. I, I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Small mind. <laughs> ah! My appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read. Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. W what do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. T too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude! Game over! Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't there anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. You hold it open! It's open to you, Majestic Mystery! Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. <laughs> it's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. I can't believe the world's come to this. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, just because a church markets itself as a Bible-teaching church doesn't mean that that's really the case. The proof is always in the pudding. 
<laughs> Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. The one says donate. The other says join our crew. Joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, there's two ways to do that. You can click on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you all, uh, those of you who are supporting us. We truly can't do what we do without your support. And thank you, thank you, thank you for uh your vote of confidence uh, with your uh, with your partnership with us financially. So thank you. Okay, I, you know what? I promised somebody I would do a, a, a answer a quick question today, and so I, I need to do this here. Even though it didn't come in via email, but then again, this is a typewriter. This came in on my Facebook wall. And I'm, I'm absolutely cer- certain that everybody who uh, you know sends me a message on my Facebook wall that this is the pace and the cadence that they uh, type at. Okay, a gal by the name of Kim, and uh, she's a listener who has befriended me on Facebook, and she asked me a question on my Facebook wall, and I don't know where she's from, even though I clicked on her Facebook. It didn't really say where she was from. But uh, Kim writes, she says, Chris, could you please tell me your stance regarding speaking in tongues? I do not speak in tongues, and I've gotten literally slammed for it. Um, It seems that those who think that they have the Holy Spirit behave in a manner of superiority. I have also never seen it done in a proper biblical manner, and never have I seen an interpreter. However, what I have seen is chaos and confusion. Okay, Kim, um, so here's the deal. I've been in churches like you're describing, and I can tell you that uh, I've experienced that same slam, okay? And uh, what you've pointed out is absolutely correct on a couple levels. Number one, you've never seen it practiced biblically. There's a reason for that. The reason for that is simple, is, is that the biblical gift of tongues, the gift that's described in Scripture, is the miraculous ability to speak in a real language that you have never studied, okay? For instance, I have never studied Swahili, okay? I can't even say with certainty as to whether or not I know a single word of Swahili, okay? Um, Except for the word Swahili itself, which may or may not be Swahili. Um, But the point is this, is that having never studied Swahili, I don't know anything about it. Um, Let me give you a, a hypothetical example of what the gift of tongues would really be like. Let's say I was visiting a friend in the hospital, okay, and that friend, uh, you know, had been in an auto accident or had their appendix taken out. Who, you know, who knows? But being the good friend that I am, I'm going to go visit my friend in the hospital, and uh, and he's in one of those hospital uh, bedrooms where, because of his insurance situation, he can't afford a private bedroom, so he has to have one of those rooms where he has a roommate. And of course, hospital roommates are just the best because you know, y'all are sick and not feeling well. And it turns out that the person in uh, across from the uh, paper thin curtain next to him in the in the next bed over is somebody from 
uh, country, and he only knows how to speak Swahili. Okay, and his family is there visiting him, and they only speak Swahili. Okay, and so um, you know, anyway, I see that he. I I go there. I say hi to my friend. And shake his hand and pray with him and and uh, try to cheer him up and you know it, it, because you know that's what friends do and and I look over and I see that the guy in the in the bed you know the, in the is he looks like he's in pain and his family looks like they're sad and they're suffering and so I were if, let's say I decided that out of you know sheer Christian love and 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 generosity you know I want to go and see if I can offer some comforting words or you know it, it maybe even pray for this family and so I walk over. To there and I begin talking to them and I say, you know, say, you know, um, I I've noticed that you guys are in pain and that you're very sad. Um, would you mind if I if I said a quick prayer for you? And they say, oh no, we please feel free to to share a quick prayer. And so I I you know I pray with them and then as a result of the prayer that you they say, could you tell us more about this Jesus? We've heard about him, but uh, we you know we we haven't really run across a lot of people who are capable of talking to us about Jesus. I said, sure, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ. Uh, a lot of people you know don't know too much about him, but it's real simple. He's actually the God of the Old Testament in human flesh, and uh, you know he was in he was born of the Virgin Mary, and uh, so he's God of God, Light of Light, very God of very God, born of the Virgin Mary, and he came to Earth and literally uh, fulfilled the law of God for us. And uh, and he fulfilled it perfectly. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again on the uh, uh, you know on, you know from the grave on the third day. So I'm I'm having this conversation with them, and I'm sharing them uh, with them about Jesus, and uh, and uh, you know and so then my f- uh, you know my friend kind of makes you know one of those moves with his head, going get over here, Rosebro, get get over here, and so I go over there and talk to my friend and. and the guy, let's say, my friend says, "What are you doing talking to those folks?" And I'm like, "Well, what do you mean? What am I? What do you do? I, you know, I wanted to pray for them, and in, and you know, perfectly wonderful people. I'm sharing the gospel with them. Why are you interrupting me?" He's all, "When did you learn to speak Swahili?" And I'd be all, "What? <laughs> I don't speak Swahili. What are you talking about? Would well, you're speaking perfect Swahili talking to those people over there? I am. See that? See that's an now, now that's a hypothetical example. Okay." That has not happened in my life, but the idea there is is that that's really what the biblical gift of tongues is, and when it first manifests in the church um, uh, on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost is like the exact opposite of uh, of the Tower of Babel. People, rather than the the languages being confused, God gives a miraculous ability for the gospel to be proclaimed by people. Uh, in other languages that they've never studied. That's really what the biblical gift of tongues is. Okay, so um, the idea there is is that um, gifts given by God, by the Holy Spirit, they're miraculous, and they're for specific purposes. So when you read in the in the in the uh, in the book of First Corinthians, I would start at chapter twelve and work through like fourteen and fifteen. It clearly lays out what the biblical gift of tongues is, and it's not some mindless, senseless um, gibberish that uh, that you know you just turn your brain off and and go humana humana humana. She drove a Hyundai, you know. That's not what the gift is all. That's not what it's all about at all. But on top of it. Um, you being clobbered and and belittled and beaten over the head because you don't have the gift, I would like to give you a passage that will help you. Okay, and that is is that the Bible clearly teaches that not everybody has the gift. So, 
what so the problem that you're experiences experiencing is number one the people who are practicing this gift they have no idea what the gift is they're not practicing it biblically and on top of it they think wrongly that everybody has this gift okay so if you have your bible flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 27 I'll let you in on a on a little secret here from this passage but I'm going to give you the homework go back and look at you know read chapters 12 through 14 and ask yourself is are these friends of mine uh that you know claim to be my christian brothers and sisters are they rightly handling this gift? The answer is no, they're not. But the fact that they're trying to pressure you and are belittling you and somehow acting like star-bellied sneeches uh, who are the best on the beaches because they can speak in tongues and you can't, um, that shows a complete arrogance and a complete – that's that's law, not gospel, and it's not biblical. Okay, First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. I'll start here. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. God has appointed in the churches first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, uh, helping administration, various kinds of tongues. Now, Paul begins to then ask a series of questions in verse 29. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, I, something you don't know, unless you can read Koine Greek, is that there is something in the Greek text that makes it unambiguously clear that each and every one of these questions is to be answered in the negative. Okay, and in, it's a, it's an untranslated particle. It's right there in the Greek, and it's the it's it's may. You can just write it down as m e, but it's yeah, understand it's pronounced may, not me. Okay, so um, and here's how, how the uh, the Greek sounds at this. He, it, and by the way, I'll do this in Greek and then translate it for you. Um, Paul asks, "Me pontes apostoloi, me pontes prophetai." Me pantes didaskaloi, me pantes dunames, me pantes charismata. Yeah, you see, you know, see here now. Here's how the how you then understand this the way it was originally penned. So as we translate it, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes a point of pointing out that God gives gifts and he gives them differently. And each of the gifts is given for the building up of the body of Christ. So when you've got friends who call themselves Christians basically abusing the gift of tongues as if they really even have the gift, if they're not speaking a real language, they ain't speaking in tongues. Okay, um, number one, they're forbidden from speaking in tongues in church unless there is an interpreter, and if they're doing that, they're actually do going against what Scripture clearly teaches. But secondly, if they're pressuring you and saying that you, uh, well, something wrong with you, we need to pray over you, we need to maybe cast a demon out of you or something, because you're not speaking in tongues, well, that's uh, a problem to say the least, because Scripture is clear. 
not all people have the gift of tongues. The scripture is clear that we should not expect that. Not only that, it's a rare gift. It's a rare, rare, rare gift. And so that that's the idea here. And this is what the text says. I remember one time uh, when I worked at Focus on the Family, uh, I, you know, I, it was quite an environment. I worked in the listener services department. We had several hundred people who worked in our, in our department. And it was a spiritual you know, train wreck, similar to the things we discuss here at Fighting for the Faith. And, I mean, there were people from just about every stripe of, of person that called themselves a Christian. We, get, we, had, we had Catholics. We had, we had Lutherans. We had Episcopalians, Presbyterians, your garden variety Nazarenes. And, uh, and then we had some people who were into the New Apostolic Reformation. It was, it was crazy. It was a crazy spiritual environment. And uh, one of the gals who worked in you know, near cubicle near me uh, literally sat me down and said, Chris, you know, I, you seem like you're a gifted guy and you, and you have a love for the Lord. And I'm really concerned for you because you don't speak in tongues. Now, I was a first year Greek student at this point, and I was familiar with what this passage said in the Greek. And so I said, tell you what, I'll bring my Greek text tomorrow. We'll sit down. We'll talk about this. And so literally sat down um, with this gal and she was an older gal. She was like in her 60s. And uh you know, sat across the table from her in the break room, opened up the scriptures, and I said, listen, um, I, you know, I, this is what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that we don't all have the gift of tongues. And I, sh- I showed her from my Greek, uh, my Greek New Testament, the, the, the particle may. I, sh- I had, a, I had a, a small Greek uh, lexicon with me, opened up to the page and said, look, this is what the lexicon says regarding this particle, that it's untranslated, and when it appears in a question or an interrogative statement, it is to be understood that the statement, the question is to be answered in the negative. She goes, got it, okay? So I then literally went through the litany with her. I, so I, I asked her, are all apostles? And, and she said, no, because I pointed to the, the, the Greek particle may. I said, are all prophets? And she said, no. And I go, see, this is what the text says. I said, are all teachers? She said, no. I asked her, do all work miracles? She said, no. I said, do all possess gifts of healing? She said, no. I said, do all speak in tongues? And she said, yes. <laughs> I am not joking. That's exactly what she said. She looked me dead in the face and she goes, yes. And I go, that's not what the text says. Her response, that's not what I believe. So, um, yeah, you've got a problem there. Um uh, Kim, and you know the problem is, is that you are being pressured contrary to what God's word is by people who do not understand, or worse, uh, refuse to come into um, alignment with what Scripture teaches regarding tongues. And the fact that they're making you feel inferior because you don't speak in tongues shows that they don't even understand properly what the gospel is either, because that's a gospel issue. Um, that somehow you are a lesser Christian or a second-class Christian because you don't speak in tongues. Um, And then they'll turn around and tell you, well, obviously there's something in your life that's getting in the way, isn't there? Otherwise, I mean, you know, if you you need to repent of something, you've got some secret sin running around there or whatever. Yeah, that's generally how that goes. And so they're going to offer to pray for you, pour oil on your head, Maybe even try to cast a demon out of you to to to, to remove the blockage that's uh, keeping you from experiencing this wonderful gift that they claim everybody's supposed to have, but Scripture makes it clear not everybody speaks in tongues. And now you have the biblical weaponry that you need to be able to uh, defend yourself here 
And may I suggest you are going to need, probably need to find a different church or a different group of Christian friends, ones that are going to point you to Christ and not to sign gifts as if those are the important center of the, of the Christian faith. The gift of tongues is not the important center. The, the, the important center is Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. Okay, moving along. These are the sounds of the uh, emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. Being freed from the pesky uh, limiting definitions of notes, they now just let the spirit guide them. brings a tear to my eye every time I hear it. And I think my ears are bleeding. Okay, so um, as promised, um, yeah, okay, so here's the deal. Uh, Doug Paget, um, who in years past has been one of the primary spearhead spokespersons and leaders of uh, what has come to be known as the emergent church movement recently appeared on Trip Fuller's podcast entitled Home Brewed Christianity, talking about church in the inventive age. And um, yeah, I just, um, I just, my brain is coming up bupkis here. I just, I'm, nothing's registering. I, you know, I, so I thought I'd pass this along here. Can you make heads or tails of this? Because um, I'm having a tough time. But here, here's Doug Padgett. Hello, homebrewed Christianity listeners. You're about to get inventive ageified with Doug Padgett. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing quite well. Hey, hey, sorry about the yelling in the background. I tried to explain to the people that I share a house with that we're going to be recording this. Um, but that, that, that that's, that's only going to influence their lives to a certain degree. <laughs> So where did your uh, new book, Church in the Inventive Age, come from? Yeah, so the idea behind Church in the Inventive Age is to suggest that we live in the fourth cultural turning of North American history. The three previous ages being the agrarian age, then the, inf- then the um, industrial age, then the information age, and finally the inventive age. And my suggestion is that a cultural period is influenced by four cultural components, how people think, the knowledge they have, the way they construct reality, the way they organize their thoughts, the values that people hold, so the things they find important, where they would spend their time, how they spend their energies, the aesthetics that are appreciated, the taste, the touch, the smell, the sound, the colors, and then the tools that are used, and the tools representing the, the way that we organize and function in our lives. And we- uh, okay, okay. Mm. Just a quick question. Um, does this not sound like uh, the stuff that you uh, learned in your um, freshman year at college in that cultural anthropology course that you were required to take as part of your general education? 
Um, hmm. Okay. What exactly does this have to do with theology? See transition in thinking, values, aesthetics, and tools to a certain degree, then sociologists and anthropologists would begin to say, now you have, have progressed to being a distinct cultural situation, or I would say a distinct cultural period from, uh, from others. And so I think there's been a shift in those four cultural areas uh, um, on three grand scales over the last 250, 300 years. And that we're now entering into what's called the inventive age. So some of my thinking on this was that we should have different categories to talk about the the current situation we live in. For some people, they like to talk about it as the postmodern condition. Some people, the postcolonial situation. Some people just call it modern age. Some people refer to it in theological terms. And I, ha- I was wanting to insert into that conversation the sociological and anthropological categories of cultural transition. So in inventive age language and inventive age use, uh, I'm trying to insert cultural, uh, anthrop- cultural anthropology categories. So in your – Can you hang on a second, Trip? Yeah. Pause this. I'm going to go talk again to the noisemakers out here. All right. Apparently the folks in his uh, emergent commune there are a little loud and uh, not conducive for radio interviews. Sorry, it's not a commune, it's a cohort. Yeah, sorry. All right, Trip, sorry, I'm back. All right. So when, um, when you just think of the churches in your neighborhood, how many different ages are, the, are churches in your neighborhood existing in? I think that these four cultures. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Okay. I am. <laughs> okay. Um. So yeah. Uh, he, 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 here's the problem I'm having at the moment. Okay. Um. Agrarian age, information age, industrial age, inventive age. Um. Regardless of the age that you are in, by the way, uh, portions of the Bible were written in the Bronze Age, and uh, the New Testament comes out during what's called the Iron Age. And, um, yeah, um, see, here's the deal. If you were born in the Stone Age, if you were born in the Bronze Age, if you were born in the Age of Aquarius, if you were born in the uh, Iron Age, the agrarian age, the age of the medieval period, if you were born in the age of reason, if you were born uh, in, he calls it the inventive age, I, you know, um, everybody born in all of those ages has the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with the tools they use or the whether or not they have a smartphone or uh, if they had to use a landline. It doesn't matter if they had to send out smoke signals or use a telegraph, or our Pony Express, or you know, our, our dinner plates, or forks and knives, or chopsticks. Uh, everybody, regardless of the age in which they were born and, and the artifacts of their surroundings, still has the same problem. And here it is. Ready? We're all born dead in trespasses and sins. Everybody, regardless of where you be living, that's the problem. Uh, you are born at war with God. 
the solution given is an ageless, timeless solution that isn't tied to a particular culture, at least in the sense that it it doesn't it only applies to a particular culture. It applies to everybody equally across cultural lines. That solution is that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, uh, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered, was buried, and was raised again on the third day. You get what I'm saying here? So that's the solution. The problems are sin. The solution is Christ and him crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day. And all of this is recorded for us in a particular um, uh, book. It's a library, if you would. And uh, that book, the Bible, um, it, it, um, it, well, that's the entire inspired word of God. And so Jesus Christ has given the church the task of making disciples, of proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, calling sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, baptizing them and teaching them all, 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 all. That would be the whole word of God. Um, you know, all that he's commanded. So, um, so regardless of whatever age you live in, Christianity's pretty, and church is going to pretty much look the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, a group of people with, uh, obviously, with different styles of clothing, depending on what age they are in, gathering together to feast on holy things, uh, God's word and the Lord's supper, uh, to uh, study and hear God's word to praise God and sing his praises and worship. And um, that doesn't really change. The buildings might look different. The trappings might look different. The clothes that people are wearing. Are different. But regardless of whatever age you live in, that's pretty much going to be the thing. It's kind of timeless. You, you get what I'm saying? So um, I'm not sure what cultural anthropology has to do with anything, um, especially in the inventive age. And and that's kind of a debatable um, title for the age that we're in. But uh, so the question on the table is, you know, how many different ages do the churches that we see on the street, you know, are they in? Periods, they exist simultaneously. And they, they even build upon one another. So just as many of us live in a, in a cross-cultural situation, um, in in other areas of our lives, right, where you might have a Swedish family living next to a Norwegian family down the road from a Finnish family across the street from Germans, um, and they all have a cultural, their own cultural situation, but they're living that uh, next door to one another and interfacing with one another. The same happens when when I think about um, cultural periods um, engaging at the same time, maybe even on the same street or in the same town. So I think what you'll see on... Um, on a street corner in, say, the city of Minneapolis, is you might see three different cultural periods uh, engaging at the same time. You know, you'll find that old um, that old prairie model church, the kind of church that maybe is represented by the Episcopalians or the uh, or Catholic communities, where they're still functioning in a parish model, because I think that the agrarian age understanding of church would look like a parish model because it's about location more than more than anything else and then you'll also have the industrial age churches that exist there and i think of industrial age churches um, best example being your modern 
Protestant mainline churches um, that are built out of the notions of the of industrialization. So you'll have a a, a Catholic parish community. Uh, what would a church that was built under the notions of the industrial age? What is what does that mean? Um, what what are the notions of the industrial age? That all the churches look the same? Uh, that they're like Fords, they were built on an on an assembly line. What 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 does that mean? Um, because even in the industrial age, you have parishes. Hey, hey, hey. I, I, I just, I don't know what any of this means. Sitting next to a mainline, you know, early 20th century church. And then right down the street from that, you'll have an evangelical church. And evangelical churches are really the information age uh, example. So just it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, evangelicalism really got started long before the um, uh, the information age, long before. If you were going to create a church in the agrarian age, you would have a parish model church. If you were going to create a church coming um, to life within the information age, that's going to be your typical evangelical church where it's not about the brand of Christianity you belong to or the town you're from, but about the information that you take in and the information that you exchange. So you have a mixture of those all happening. And an individual, a person, tends to move in and out or through or around those different cultural expressions uh, pretty seamlessly. So in the inventive age, I mean, since, well, that's where we're at, apparently you just need to join an emergent cohort and sit around in a circle and uh, have a conversation. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm at this point um, completely suspicious of all of these different categories, and I think the fundamental assumption should be challenged uh, that uh, Doug Paget has put forward in these books. The fundamental assumptions really, truly do need to be challenged because... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not buying it. Uh, this sounds like some kind of an excuse to say, oh, well, we can't do church that way because we're living in the inventive age. You know, who wants to sit around and have a pastor preach God's word to us? <laughs> that's, that's an information age thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm just not buying it. This is a, a way of exalting culture or subculture, or technology, so to speak, over uh, Scripture. And I don't see culture in the driver's seat. I see God's Word in the driver's seat. And when you see God's Word in the driver's seat, you see that God's Word is transcendent. It applies to everybody, everywhere, equally, regardless of culture, regardless of community. And uh, the the way that the church has been doing church for the last 2,000 years, well, there's a reason for that. Because that model has been found, tried, tested, and true as the right model for preaching, teaching, and proclaiming God's Word and Christ and Him crucified for our sins. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, that's... I, yeah, I just... I, I kind of see these church these uh, these uh, latest books by Doug Paget as like non-starters. That's about the only way I can describe it. Okay, moving along. Last segment before we do the sermon review. The sermon review is it, the sermon's shorter because it's uh, it's a Lutheran homily, and Lutheran sermons are 
generally not very long, but uh, it, it doesn't need to be long to get the point across. But um, I'm going to be playing portions of uh, here Mark Driscoll's um, sermon that he gave regarding spiritual warfare. Now everybody's taken a look at the uh, the the you know and talked about and weighed in on the pornographic vision things that he claims that he's receiving. Um, I'm not going to focus on that here. Um, he's going to talk about kind of a methodology that he's adopted regarding uh, counseling people that sound like they're Christians but are demonized. And um, I'm just going to ask the question: Where is this taught in the Bible? But uh, so, um, yeah, without any further ado, uh, here is uh, Mark Driscoll. You imagine walking into a trial. Let's say there's somebody who's just evil and they were at a trial. Can you imagine if there were no rules, no bailiff, no judge, right? They weren't shackled up. Can you imagine what a trial would look like? It would be insane. People who do demonic counseling and don't say, Holy Spirit's bailiff, you know, Jesus is the judge. I'm here as attorney doing questioning. People who don't set it up as a trial, that's where it goes nuts. This is literally, I know pastors, this is where the 110-pound lady picks up the 300-pound Baptist pastor and throws him across the office. And he's laying on his back going, apparently did something wrong. Yeah, you did. It's the same as bringing in a mass murderer for trial. No bailiff, no shackles, uh, no cop, no gun, no judge. You're just going to talk to him. Well, it's going to get crazy. Okay, um, okay, what? Um, my head's spinning at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, that conjures up the wrong uh, mental images. Um, out of confusion here, not because I'm possessed or anything like that. But uh, So he's saying here in this sermon that he delivered regarding spiritual for- warfare that talking about doing demonic counseling, and it's imperative that going into a demonic counseling situation that you set the situation up as a trial and that you're going that the holy spirit is the judge and that um and that you're a prosecuting attorney um who who developed this where is this coming from the authority is from jesus we don't let satan and demons show off we don't We don't let them boast, brag, hurt people, intimidate people. It's a trial. The goal is to get the truth, sentence them, and send them away. That's all. Uh, uh, I'm raising my hand here. Uh, Hey, I got a question, Mark. Um, Where in the Bible does it say that we can put devils on trial? Um, I'm not familiar with those passages, so I have, you know, um, I'm challenging the fundamental biblical grounds of this technique that you're teaching here. Um, let me play a little bit more. So I established the ground rules. I just literally say this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be using the personal pronoun we because I stand with, and then I name the person. And I always have someone there with me who's a godly witness. If they're married and they have a good spouse, I'll have their spouse there, dear friend of theirs, fellow pastor, one or two people there as witnesses. I stand with them as their brother in Jesus Christ. And since the Holy Spirit lives in us both. Uh, Okay, so you're standing there as their brother in Jesus Christ. So this is demonic counseling for Christians. Okay. Command you in the name and authority, the one true God who rules his Father, Son, and Spirit. You're an unwanted intruder who is going to have to leave upon command. And then I lay down the ground rules. 
Court is now in session. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Test the spirits. Here's the ground rules. You remember those guys in the, uh, remember the seven sons of Siva in the New Testament? Right? No ground rules. They walk up, hey, are you a demon? And then they get like beat up, bloodied, running for their life naked. Uh, yeah, um, Mark, got a problem here. I, I, um, the story of the seven sons of Sceva, or Siva, um, though they were sons of a Jewish high priest and they were not Christians. Uh, this is found in the book of Acts. And the story basically goes that Paul was in Ephesus and he was, you know, doing the miracles and casting out demons and things like that. And these seven sons of Sceva, who were not Christians, decided that they were going to perform an exorcism on somebody who was possessed by a demon, and they weren't even Christians. And so they got themselves into the house, the demon-possessed person's there, is there, and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, at that point, we've got a problem, because you've got a non-Christian, according to the story, uh, invoking the name of Jesus, a name he does not have the authority to invoke because he's not one of Jesus's. He's not in Jesus. He's not a Christian. And so the demon kind of figures out what's going on here and turns and says to the seven brothers, um, well, the, the response is, Jesus I know. Paul, I've heard of. But who are you? And things go really badly at that point during that exorcism that's recorded for us in the book of Acts. And the seven sons of Sceva find themselves overpowered by the demoniac. They all then get beaten to within an inch of their life. They're stripped of their clothes and they leave, according to the scriptures, they leave that house naked and bleeding. Okay, so the problem wasn't that they didn't set ground rules for the exorcism, you know, didn't have enough sense to say, oh, yeah, okay, listen, you know, we're dealing with demons here. So let's set this thing up as a trial and I'll be the prosecuting attorney. You guys, you know, you go ahead and you can you, you can help. Uh, you can be like the co-prosecuting attorney. You guys over there, go sit in the jury box and uh, and uh, let's just set up some ground rules here and then that'll solve the problem. You know, um, Mark, you're not telling the story correctly. And um, so the seven sons of Sceva, the, the, the moral of the story is not make sure to set up your uh, your exorcisms as a trial. Um, you can't even remotely come up with that from the text. So, again, where are you getting this information uh, as far as setting up a, a demonic counseling session in this way? You don't want to be that guy or gal. All right? you, you don't want to be that. Lay down rules. Before you start talking to a demon, lay down some rules. By the Why would I want to talk to a demon? I have, I have no biblical reason given that I would want to have a communication with a demon. Authority of God through Jesus Christ enforced by the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we establish our authority over Satan and demons delegated to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That I am in Christ, Christ is in me, that all that is under his feet is under my feet. He says, I have given you authority to trample upon scorpions and serpents. Yeah. That's demons, Luke. Okay. I bind the strong man. Jesus talks about the strong man. That's the, whatever demon is. Okay, hang, I, I got to switch to the next video because it's in, it's in parts and pieces. So we just came to the end of that part. Here's the next one. 
Find the strong man. Jesus talks about the strong man. That's the, whatever demon is of highest ranking authority. Demons are organized like military. Um, just saying Jesus talks about binding the strong man. Um, hmm. Yeah, if we were to uh, look that up, would, I mean, what would what would that actually look like if we looked up that passage? Um, let me see what I got here. I need to do open up a new window in my uh, in my Bible on the uh, on my computer here. Strong man, hang on. So, see, he just said that Jesus talks about something about the strong man. Okay, well, uh, let's take a look. Okay, so here's the deal. I type in the word strong man in my computerized Bible. I'm using Accordance for the Macintosh here. And uh, it shows up in three different Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. The Gospel of Mark chapter 3, verse 27. The Gospel of Luke chapter 21. Let's take a look and put some context in these verses to see. Well, he says that Jesus talks about binding the strong man. Is Jesus, what exactly is he talking about? Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 26. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, uh, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks against uh, a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Either in the inventive age either, by the way. But uh, so here's the problem. Um, the uh, This is a metaphor. Jesus isn't saying that there's a literal demon out there, name the strong man that you need to bind. Um, Jesus, at this point, is speaking as a metaphor. Um, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? He's not saying that there's a demon out there named the strong man, at least not in... Matthew. So let's take a look at Mark chapter thirty, uh, chapter three, verse twenty-four. If a kingdom is divided against itself, yeah, this is a good parallel. Uh, cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen upon, uh, up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his is uh, is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Right. Um. Um, so, uh, yeah, and the Luke passage, Luke 11, uh, isn't even talking about that. Um, yeah, uh, so, uh, uh, I got, I got a problem here. Um, this is a sermon he's giving on, um, spiritual warfare, and he's discussing demonic counseling, and, um, I'm not hearing God's word rightly preached here, or handled, and... Um, you know what this reminds me of? Um, back when I was a, a youth and um, um, spiritually, um, let's just say, deceived, um, I spent some time in the New Apostolic Reformation. And uh, one of the favorite things that they, those folks like to do was practice something called deliverance and inner healing. And uh, boy, that was a harrowing thing to watch. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that they were working with the idea that Christians can be demonized or possessed. And um, 
The Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible teaches that Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit does not share uh, his temple with demons. Um, so I, this sounds so similar to the stuff that I witnessed and saw when I was in the New Apostolic Reformation, the, the deliverance and inner healing ministry stuff going on. And um, again, I just asking the question, where is he getting this stuff from? Because the Bible passages he's quoting are not in context. Terry, there are those who lead, there are those who follow. I don't want to waste my time going after every buck private. I want to know who's in charge, and I want to get this over with. Some people, I know they don't do this, and they end up going for hours. I mean, 10, 12, 14-hour meetings. No way. Satan loves to show off. They'll send up all the buck privates for trial first. You're exhausted and worn out and confused by the time you even get to a general. I command that you convey your answers to the person, and they will convey uh, your answers to me. You will not speak to me because you are on trial and under the authority delegated to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you engage a demon directly, that elicits their pride. And how do you know this? You must speak to the person. The person serves as translator. They tell you what they're hearing or seeing. So you have, you have a Christian brother or sister basically being a spiritist or a medium for you? Um... Hello, um, I, I got some problems with this, and this is not what the scriptures teach. If Satan's been lying, accusing, condemning them, they're listening to him all the time, or I should say a demon, they're listening to him all the time anyways, so may as well just have them tell you what they're hearing and the answers that are being conveyed. Think of it like a translator. Yeah, I'm thinking of it as them being a medium or a spiritist, and the Bible forbids that. I command that you not change your authority structure, hide, duplicate your identity, or change your name. If you don't do this, they'll send up one demon. He'll say, my name's Hank. And they'll send up another demon saying, my name's Hank. And you'll think, oh, we, it's failing. They're not going. Well, that's because they're changing their name. Why are you even talking to them? They'll, they'll invert their authority structure. They'll say, I command the one who's in charge. And they'll invert their authority structure. And just like in a war, if you capture a bunch of POWs, you say, who's the general? Well, they put the general hat on a buck private because nobody cares if he takes one. And all of a sudden, the general's dressed up like a buck private, hoping not to get you know, brought to trial. I, I, I don't see any, any biblical evidence about holding a, a war crimes tribunal uh, or a courtroom drama uh, in dealing with demons. Um, yeah, don't see any reason to talk with them or to get any information from them. I don't want to know anything about them, and if I were to run into one, I would command it in the name of Jesus Christ to get out. And if that didn't work, I'd pray and fast, because Jesus said that some only come out by prayer and fasting. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see any need to get any information from any demon for any reason whatsoever. Nor do I see in Scripture, um, uh, even the Apostle Paul sitting there going, "Hey, talk to me, demon, and tell me what's uh, what's going on." Wait a second, don't talk to me directly. Talk to me through that person over there. Um, and, uh, Paul, you know, and Philippi got rather um, flummoxed and flabbergasted and, and um, upset at that uh, demon-possessed girl, and who kept saying, those men are teaching you about uh, the Most High God. And she was doing it in a polytheistic setting, which made it sound like Jesus was just like one God of many. And Paul, you know, this went on for a few days. 
Paul finally said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it, and it did. Um, I didn't see her sitting there going, okay, we're going to help. We, quick, let's hold a trial. Um, what's your name? Uh, my name's Hank. You know, yes, no ground rules necessary. Um, um, we're not supposed to be talking to demons. We, you got, you, there's like, you know, real simple. They, they can't show off if you don't talk to them. Um, they can't claim to be, you know, a name that they're not named if you don't ask them their names. You don't even need their names to cast them out. So, again, my question is, where is he getting this stuff from? No inverting the authority structure. No changing the names. No alteration of the truth. There will be no profanity. I don't want to hear him curse God and Jesus this and Jesus that. No way. I don't want to hear that. You will answer every question directed to you clearly, concisely, immediately, completely, truthfully. It's saying, I want an answer right now, and I want the truth. I don't want you to wait for 10 hours and try and exhaust me and wear me down. I command you'll not have any outside help or reinforcement during this trial. I need more demons showing up in my office to join in on the party. We're not doing that. I command that the answer... Well, then don't have a party. ...you give must stand as truth before the white throne of the Lord God Almighty. Some will say you don't ask any questions of a demon because they're liars and they lie. And I say I know they lie, but when they stand before the white throne of God mentioned in Revelation, all truth will be known, and I check it by that. Uh, where in the Bible does it say you can check it by that? I'll show you how that's done. Yeah, please. Uh, when convicted, there will be one-way traffic only from the demon to the pit. Right? You're not going to go bother anyone else at any time, especially those in the room and our families. You're not going to enter another person. You're not going to hassle other people. Worst thing you can do is cast a demon out and not send it to the pit. You cast a demon out, it just goes to, I don't know, one of your kids, somebody else. Um, my kids are Christians. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't have any... Oh, boy, this is ridiculous. Bind you by any name you give and name you if needed. Some demons in the Bible, we don't know their names. Some we do. Jesus calls one legion. We know Satan's name. I ask him, what is your name? If they don't tell me, I'll give them a name. Sometimes it's a stall tactic to make this thing last forever. I bind you by the ground. Uh, I command you to only speak which can be used against you. I don't want to hear about all the stuff you've done and how many generations you've been at work. And how well, then don't talk to them. How many children you've molested and how many women you've raped, how many men you've turned into addicts and how many people you've gotten to kill themselves. I don't want to hear your boasting, just your condemnation. I just want to know what I need to know so we can sentence you. That's all. Again, where does the Bible say that we can do this? You know, hold a trial, you know. And my goal in knowing this is not, is not for any other purpose than the counselee to know, this is a real demon. It's really been at work. Here's all the bad things he said, done. I shouldn't say he, it. I think they're gender neutral. They're not male or female. Um, they may manifest as male and female, but they're spirits. They don't have the anatomical structure that we do. Um, I just want the person to know what's been going on so that they don't ever mess around with a demon again. Um, I bind you by the ground rules we lay down. Command there be no... Why don't you have them confess their sins and you can proclaim uh, you know, that their sins are forgiven? Yeah, they, they, in years past, there was this thing called confession and absolution. job of the pastor was to forgive sins. Um... Yeah, that's the, the gospel and absolution far more powerful than this. Um, 
I mean, this sounds pretty elaborate and all, but um, yeah, I'm just not seeing this in the Bible. Control the mind, confusion of the mind, the tongue or the body, and that the person will maintain complete self-control and they won't undergo any harm. I don't want their eyes rolling back in their head. I don't want their voice changing. I don't want their mind confused. I mean, seriously, where did you come up with all this legal fine print? I mean, do you make the demon sign it in blood before you begin the exorcism? Sometimes I'll tell people, okay, in the middle of it, here, read this psalm. They say, I can't even see it. I can't see. I mean, they go blind. They can't hear things. They go deaf. Get rid of all of that with ground rules. It's just all stall tactics. Again, imagine having a trial with no rules and no bailiff and no shackles. Craziness. You'll take all of your associates and all of their collective works with you, right? So if I get the demon who's in charge, I want all the associate demons working with them and all of their works and effects to go, meaning if you made them sick, take the sickness. You gave them some sort of chronic ailment, ailment rather, take it with you. I command you to take it all with you. And ask the Holy Spirit. I don't, you don't command the Holy Spirit. You, know, you lay down the ground rules, you command the demon. You don't command the Holy Spirit to do anything. He's God. You ask him to rule over all the spirits, force them to cooperate according to the ground rules, and punish any who seek to disobey. So I lay down the ground rules after sharing the gospel with a person, explaining what we're going to do, and I basically tell them, we're going to see if demons are at work in your life, and we're going to have a trial. We're going to do 1 John 4. We're going to test the spirits. We're going to do it by Ephesians 6. We're going to use faith and prayer and the Bible and Jesus, and this isn't going to be crazy or funky. I'm going to ask... Yeah, well, we're already past that part. This is already crazy and funky because... I don't see anywhere in the scripture where we have the authority to hold a trial, lay ground rules, you know, make demons uh, uh, basically sign on the dotted line regarding a whole bunch of um, uh, legalese, legalese, legalese and fine print. Ask you questions. You tell me the answers. We're going to confess sin, repent of it, pray, and get this junk out of your life. We're just going to use the gospel. Uh, no, you're using a lot more than the gospel. I then make uh, declarations of truth. We declare the following uh, as truth before the white throne. That's the judgment seat of the Lord God Almighty. Number one, Luke 8, 10, 18 through 20. We claim protection from and authority over Satan and demons. Jesus says, I have given you authority over Satan and demons. He has. We claim our position, number two, in Christ and all things that are under Christ's authority under our authority. Ephesians 1, 18 through 2, 8. Sometimes I'll read these verses or just explain them. That Christ is over all and that I am seated with Christ. And so it is under me as well. That's where Paul tells the Corinthians that Christians will even judge the what? The angels, he says. So in judging demons, we're not doing anything we weren't made to do. We are going to judge the angels in the end. Perfectly fine to judge a few in the middle as well. And we claim our victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 2, 13 through 15. That he disarmed the powers, the demons that were against us. He took away our sin and he has crushed Satan and demons and Jesus' victory is ours. Then I ask him this, and this comes out of their homework. Give me the two or three primary areas that are the most troubling. If you want to deal with one thing, two things, three things, what's the big thing you want to get rid of? It's killing you. What's the, what's the place we start? I start with a big issue rather than the little issue so that we can get off to a good start, that they're not exhausted, that we build some momentum, that they see what we are doing works. I then ask them to confess sins and cancel ground uh, and uh, command leaving one at a time. So I'll say, okay, before we start... Yeah, I, I like the idea of them confessing sins. Are they hearing that their sins are forgiven because of Christ's shed blood on the cross? Are they hearing absolution for those sins? And 
Again, that's where the power's at, not the other sideshow here. You know, how did you open the door, proverbial speaking? Well, you know, I was uh, committed adultery. And then after that, I started having night terrors. Well, guess what? Probably a connection there, huh? Probably. Uh, can, can I point something out here? Um, yeah, the, the proverbial, the devil made me do it. Um, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, I, uh, that's the other problem I'm having here. It sounds like we're blaming the fact that the guy committed adultery on the fact that a demon made him do it. Um, yeah, that guy probably did that because his sinful flesh said to do it. Uh, no demon necessary need, you know, to commit sins. You get what I'm saying here? Open the door with adultery. Have you ever really repented of that to Jesus and asked him to forgive you? Not really. Well, let's do that right now. Let's stop right now and let's, re let's have you repent of that sin. Ask Jesus to forgive you. He died. Receive forgiveness. Let's get, because Satan did. Yeah, good. I like that part. And then receive forgiveness. Are you going to give it to him? Demons with the believer. In addition to sort of external torment and such, most of what they have is what we've given them by opening the door through sin. Oh, man. Well, then confess it as a sin. Kick them out. Let's lock the door. But you gotta, you got to straighten this out with Jesus. you got to repent. you got to straighten this out with Jesus. Yeah. Um... So a good chunk of the time is just spent in repentance of particular sin. That's all it is. Getting rid of those handholds and footholds. Um, I then asked them a series of questions. This is where we start. Number 10. Uh, I, I usually will check with ancestral sin and I'm looking at their past. You know, if they come from 10 generations. Oh, man. Okay. Um, yeah, this, I, I'm just, I'm wigging out here. Um, this just feels and reminds me too much of that really, really unbiblical, crazy practice known as deliverance and inner healing. And I, I, I think we need to challenge the, the, all of the assumptions of this particular methodology. Um, hmm. Glad to hear that uh, in this demonic counseling that people are hearing the gospel and, you know, applied to specific sins, but... Um, I, I think we're giving way too much time and, um, attention to the devil here, um, and more so than Christ and the cross. And, um, again, I don't see any biblical basis for setting up a trial, setting up ground rules, you know, things like that. I just, I'm, hmm. Yeah, no, um, this, um, this is a problem. Yeah, this, 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 this something's seriously going wrong here. And, um, yeah, some of the assumptions behind that whole practice, they're not even close to biblical or right. And again, why on earth would I even want to have a conversation uh, with a demon? I don't see any biblical precedent for doing such a thing. And my question, where did he get this? Um, is uh, this just sounds to me like another uh, form of putting your experience over scripture and trying to jerry rig or shoehorn scripture to agree with your experience? Uh, uh, my reading of scripture, yeah, I, I don't, I, I have no desire to encounter, talk with, or do anything with demons. And should they show up, um, just a simple, um, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone with you seems to be the thing that's in order. And then let's focus on repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and let's not give Satan a forum, a grandstand, or anything, because the whole point of you being an attorney and cross-examining and talking to the demon 
it gives them a lot more chances to do things than um, than well, I don't even think Christians need to give them any of that at all. Again, it sounds to me like somebody spent a lot of time from their personal experience putting together a manual, and I'm challenging the assumptions of the manual, period, and saying, yeah, this sounds like a supplement to Scripture, not what the Scriptures teach. So there you have it. You know. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we got a very brief sermon review. It's not a very big, long sermon, but again, it does not have to be long to do what it needs to do. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me, my friend, on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Uh, We're like... Way past hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. You know, my timing's completely off today. Just roll with it. I've got a good sermon uh, for you to, uh, today, and um, I think I need that to get some of that crazy demon stuff here. It's, again, that uh, sounds dangerously close to that unbiblical practice known as deliverance and inner healing ministries. Fundamental flaw there. Um, de- uh, Christians aren't possessed by demons. Yeah, they have the Holy Spirit. Okay. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Pastor Ron Hodel presiding. The name of the sermon, Hang by the Law or Life in Jesus. 
This is a great sermon on that uh, text that we were looking at earlier this week on uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. Um, that was the uh, text that I was making the point about how uh, a lot of people, fo- uh, they just read the first part of it and miss the punchline. The punchline is Jesus's question to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not their question or his answer to their question. Yeah. Tell you what, hang on a second here. I'm going to kill the music. Let me read the gospel text and then we'll just dive right into the sermon. Although, hung on. All right, enough, enough, enough. Okay, so uh, here, here's what the gospel text says. It says, uh, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, uh, great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, The son of David. He said to them, Well, then how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to uh, answer him a word, nor from that day did they dare to ask him any more questions. That's the gospel uh, text that makes up the basis of this sermon entitled, Hang by the Law or Life in Jesus by Pastor Ron Hodel. Here we go. God's grace, his mercy, and his peace be multiplied among you, my dear friends and fellow Christians. This morning's reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew poses two questions, a law question and a gospel question. The law question came from none other than an expert in the law, a Pharisee. It was designed to trap Jesus in his own words. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? If you could summarize all that Moses taught in one simple commandment, what would that commandment be? The other question is a gospel question posed by Jesus. It was a question, if you will, designed to trap the Pharisees. Trap the Pharisees in the forgiving grace of Jesus. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? These are two very important questions because on these two questions depend, or on these two questions hang, our eternal life and our hope of heaven. Which is the great commandment in the law? They asked Jesus. It was a question that the Pharisees wrestled with. If God expects us to obey his law, and he does, then in one simple phrase, what does the law require? You see, a great debate had arisen around the time of Jesus as to whether the five books of Moses could be reduced into one simple, essential commandment from which all the others flowed. In other words, what is the bottom line? What is the Reader's Digest version? What is the executive summary statement of the law? They were searching for God's will in a nutshell. 
a least common denominator, bumper sticker-sized slogan that would fully capture the law of God. And so far, all they'd managed to do was multiply the commandments. God had summed things up very neatly in the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees, as they wrestled with which one of them was the greatest, had managed to expand things to 613 do's and don'ts. And so, answering their question, Jesus replies, not with one, but with two great commandments. Because you see, with Jesus, you always get more than you'd even dare ask for. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Heart, soul, and mind. It's the Hebrew way of saying the whole of you, every last bit of you, with nothing held back. Love God with every fiber of your being. That's the first and great commandment. And then Jesus adds, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The two go side by side. They go hand in hand. Love of God and love of neighbor. They are inseparable. You can't claim to love God if you don't love your neighbor. On these two commandments, the entire law and prophets hang. They're kind of like twin hooks, like like picture hooks. The entire long gospel hang on those two picture hooks. Get them out of balance or leave one out altogether and the whole picture hangs funny. Essentially, the entire law of God can be boiled down to two simple commandments. Love God with your whole being and love whomever God puts next to you as you love yourself. And because that's still too long to fit on a bumper sticker, you can boil it all down, distill it to one four-letter word, love. St. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, said, He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in one sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We have trouble with the word love. We think love is something you fall into, a warm, fuzzy feeling on the insides. But love isn't a feeling. Love is an orientation of the will in action toward another. To love God and to love our neighbor doesn't necessarily mean that we will have a warm, fuzzy feeling toward God or toward our neighbor. Because love isn't a feeling. It's an orientation. Love isn't something you fall into. You fall into ditches. You fall into holes filled with mud, but you don't fall into love. Love is a deliberate action of the will. 
To love means deliberately to turn ourselves toward another, to give away something of yourself to someone else without expecting anything else in return. When the Bible talks about love, it doesn't use fuzzy feeling talk. It uses sacrifice talk. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To love is to be turned inside out toward someone outside of yourself, whether toward God or toward your neighbor. That's sacrifice talk. And who is my neighbor? Anyone whom the Lord has put on your path who is in need. It might be someone you have a brief encounter with on the street or waiting in the line at the grocery store. It might be a person who is in the hospital bed next to you. Your first neighbors were your mom and your dad. And if they're still alive, they're still your first neighbors. Your neighbors are members of your household, your husband, your wife, your children, your in-laws, even those in-laws that treat you like an outlaw. Your neighbor is the person who lives next door or maybe two or three doors down, fellow members of your own congregation, your co-workers and classmates, and even your students if you're a teacher. Your neighbor is the person in the office cubicle next to you or the person working on the assembly line next to you. In fact, your neighbor just might even be an enemy of yours. So we have a lot of neighbors. And those are the ones whom the law says we are to love, whether they are kind to us or not, whether we like them or not, whether we feel like it or not. And if you don't love your neighbor whom you can see, then how can you claim to love God whom you can't see? Jesus links the love of neighbor with our love for God. We love God by loving our neighbor. A cup of water we give to one who is thirsty, we give to God. The food we give to the hungry, we give to God. The comfort we give to someone who is suffering, we give to God. The time we spend enriching the lives of someone else is time we offer to God. That's our spiritual sacrifice. That's the way we exercise our royal priesthood. For priests are ones who sacrifice. When we love in those ways, we reflect God's love to others. Kind of like in the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. When, when God made Adam and Eve in the beginning, 
They perfectly reflected the love of God. That's what it means when it says that Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. But their rebellion darkened that mirror. And our self-centeredness, our inborn desire to be God in the place of God has distorted our reflection of God's love too. Distorted it so much that we don't even recognize the original when we see it. So to hear that we are to love God with all that we are and that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves is true. But it's not very good news at all. This command condemns us. This command leaves us all hanging high and dry. Now, notice what he did there. I, I, I don't normally interrupt good sermons very often, but notice what he's doing with the law here. He's nailing you to the wall with it. So here we've been hearing Pastor Hodel spend the majority of the sermon up to this point marinating on the law section of this um, biblical text. And now he's just pulled the rug out from under you and um, basically say, you ain't doing this. You've been nailed to the wall as a lawbreaker. You're not justified by your keeping of the commandments to love God and love neighbor because you don't. Not perfectly. As a result of it, this, this section of the law condemns. It doesn't justify. It condemns. And this law question leads to another question. Who then can be saved? Who can dare step into the presence of God? Do you love like this? I don't love like this. I'm not proud of that, but I don't. Not even the greatest of the loving saints loved like this. The law question kills us. If the entire law and prophets hang on these two commandments, then we are hung by the law and the prophets. But as long as we are asking law questions, we haven't yet arrived at Jesus' question. And so Jesus himself has to ask that question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees knew that the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Christ, they knew he was to be David's son, a blood descendant of David. But there's more to being the Messiah than just having royal blood coursing through your veins. Jesus asked them, how can it be that David's descendant is also David's Lord? For that's what David so clearly prayed by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's the Jesus question. And the answer puts an end to all the other questions. The Messiah is David's son, a human being. But he was also David's Lord In other words, he was both God and man, begotten of his father, 
from all eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. When Jesus asked this question, he was pointing to the very mystery of his incarnation, that in him, God became a man, a new and renewed man, humanity as God intended humanity to be. He came to restore the image of God to our fallen, broken humanity, to love God with his entire being and to love his neighbors as himself. Jesus came to love us with God's love. And that's exactly what he did. Love us not with some warm, fuzzy feeling, but with an orientation of his will toward you. He loved us while we were yet still his sworn bitter enemies. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he loved us to death on a cross. And in our baptisms, God gave us Christ's perfect life, his death and his resurrection as a gift. And now... For Christ's sake, eternal life is yours. Forgiveness of sins is yours. Perfect love in God, of of God is, is yours. True love flows from God's love. Now, when we love our neighbors, it's because we were loved by God first. No longer do you have to love You get to love because you were loved first. You don't have to love in order to get to heaven. You love because heaven is already yours in Christ. You don't love in order to win God's favor. You love because you already have God's favor. You don't love so that God will love you. You love because God in Christ has already loved you with the greatest love you could ever know. Which is the greatest commandment of the law? Love God and love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. How are you doing with that? Greater than your love, though. Even greater than the law that judges your love to be amazingly inadequate is the one who loves perfectly David's son and David's Lord, Jesus Christ your Lord. On him hang the sins of the world. On him hangs your life and your salvation. And that means it's certain and sure. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right on. Right on. And then he swings with the gospel and hits a grand slam home run. Because your salvation hangs on Jesus, your salvation is sure. It's not based upon your law-keeping, either before or after salvation. It's based on Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Look to your crucified and risen Lord. 
the one who bled and died for you. Look to him, because he is the one who has secured your salvation. We are saved because of what he has done, what he has done for us. And now that we've been set free from sin, death, and the, and the devil, we get to love God and we get to love neighbor, uh, our neighbor because that's what we truly are set free to do. Amen, amen, and amen. Right, we're at the end of another week of broadcasting here at Fighting for the Faith. You know that this is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, please do so by visiting our website or sending in uh, a gift to our uh, P.O. Box at uh, Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And thank you for your support. So what would you think? I, you know, I'd love to get your feedback. This is kind of a weird program today. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.